0: Our scripture this morning is from 2 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. It's found on page 1852, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let's pray together as we prepare to hear God's word. God, we are expected before you this morning as we pray. Prepare to hear your word. Tune our ears, our hearts, our lives to what you speak to us. And help us as we are prepared to receive you not only in a celebration of your birth this coming week but as we are prepared to receive you when you come again. We pray this. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed a death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That's why I am suffering as I am. Yet I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. You have heard from me. Keep us the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. My parents believed in Jesus Christ. My grandparents believed. My great-grandparents were believers in Jesus Christ. If you want to know a truth about me, it's this. I'm the beneficiary of a spiritual heritage of faith in Jesus. Not a bloodline of faith. Faith has little to do with your biological heritage. I benefit from a spiritual transmission of faith. God adopted me into his family through Jesus Christ. And God used my family to do this. This Advent, I encouraged older Christians to write letters to younger Christians. Some of you took up that challenge. You were invited to tell the next generation what Jesus means to you, what his birth and life means to you. You were just like Paul, who wrote to Timothy, My dear son, sincere faith lives first in those who have gone before us. Faith is passed from generation to generation through ordinary people. Faith doesn't start with you. You received a deposit from someone uh, before you. And faith doesn't stop with you, you pass it along to those who come behind you. Paul writes to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. Talking with Warren Wissink just the other day, he assures me that you will find the best of him in his grandchildren. I'll leave that to the parents to judge. But this much is true. God uses ordinary people like Warren to pass faith along from generation to generation. Here's Paul, stuck in a Roman prison, faces the end of his life, and he recalls that the last time he saw Timothy, Timothy had tears streaming down his faith. Timothy was like a son to Paul. Paul writes to Timothy about the way faith has worked its way into Timothy's life. It's the way God always works. God opens up our lives to his grace, and those lives, touched by grace, influence the next generation. Abraham and Sarah were run-of-the-mill 90-year-olds. Just when they had given up hope of ever being parents, God had the last laugh, and God blessed them with a son, Isaac. And God used these non-generians to move faith along to the next generation. Jesse's son, David, the youngest of the family, he took the heritage of faith he received and passed it along. Though some generations struggled, a remnant of faith made it from him to its manger in Bethlehem to receive the gift that God had prepared. God used kings and prophets and priests to move faith along from generation to generation. Ordinary people, Ruth, Nathan, Elijah, Hezekiah, Esther, Isaiah, Zechariah, Mary. God worked his purposes out through ordinary people. Not because these people were so great. Rather, God does great things through them. God comes to us through ordinary people. Think about your life. The truth of God's love came to you through an ordinary person. You became a believer because someone involved themselves in your life. You saw the reality of Christian faith up close and it became personal to you. Your mother took you to Sunday school, talked with you about the stories you heard. You saw her on her knees praying. The reality of her faith convinced you about Jesus. You came to see Him as the Savior of the world. But I'm not just talking about mothers and fathers. Many of us can speak to the blessing we've received from those other than our parents. I was influenced to faith by Mel, by Dottie, by John. They spoke and they acted into my life so that I came to see Jesus more clearly. For others of you, it's a a best friend who made an impact. He listened when you were hurting. He prayed for you. The reality of his faith convinced you that Jesus really was the Savior of the world. God uses ordinary people to pass faith along from generation to generation Grandfathers and grandmothers, aunts and uncles, neighbors and friends. Timothy had received sincere faith from his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. The writers of our Advent letters talking about what Jesus means to them clearly stated that sincere faith. They wrote things like this. Jesus is my Savior and Lord. Christmas wouldn't be Christmas without Jesus. Jesus is my reason for living. Having someone love me like Jesus does is the most amazing present I could ever get. Each of them is entrusted a good deposit of faith by others in the generation before them. God works through ordinary people to pass faith along from generation to generation. If you believe in Jesus, you can look back at your life and you can discern the person or the persons who passed along to you a sincere faith. They taught you about Jesus. And you're part of a long line of believers stretching all the way back to Abraham and Sarah. Faith is passed along by ordinary people, a sacred trust from generation to generation. And the foundation of faith, past, present, and future, is the grace of Jesus Christ. God's eternal grace comes to life in Jesus. Paul says about God's grace, This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. This is God's grace, that God has saved us out of his own goodness and strength. We're not saved because of anything we've done. We're saved to a holy life because this was God's purpose and plan. We have life by grace. It's not our works, it's God's deeds. One of our what does Jesus' birth mean to me letter writers contrasted Santa and Jesus. Yes, Virginia, there is a Jesus And he loves us whether we're good or bad. Not like Santa who brings gifts to only the good boys and girls. Jesus gives to all boys and girls. Too many of us treat God like Santa. If I do something good, God should bless me. If I do something bad, then likely God will curse me. If only I act a certain way, have a certain doctrine, follow a certain commandment. If only I do this or that, God will love me. Sorry, that's a hopeless cause. Here's the truth. He saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. We're saved by God's grace not because of anything we've done. Philip Yancey once said, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There is nothing you can do to make God love you less. God loves you perfectly already. God loves you as you are in order to help you become all that God wants you to be. God's grace enters our lives to give us a second chance. A million second chances. Our gracious God is a God of second chances. A second chance is you wake up in the morning to discover the body you murdered was only your pillow. A second chance is the feeling you get when the history teacher cancels the exam and gives you another 24 hours to study. A second chance is when you fall asleep at the wheel of the car and you awake just in time to screech that hurtling, meddling, projectile to a halt. God's grace means God gives us second chances. Big ones, little ones, world and life-changing ones. We're here today because God offered each of us a second chance. We have life by grace. Our second chance is named grace. Offered life in Jesus' name, a life that can't be taken away from us. In Jesus' sin begins to lose its grip on us, and we come alive in Christ. In fact, the power of our second chance is that our eternal life starts right now. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. He destroyed death. You have nothing to fear. Nothing. The greatest enemy of humanity, the curse of death that appeared when sin entered the world, has been overcome. That's why Cliff Eskis could say to me that Ginger was ready for death. She wasn't afraid of what would greet her on the other side. Jesus brought life and immortality to light. Even though Paul faces the end of his life, he writes this letter of encouragement to Timothy because Paul has life in Jesus' name. God's gift has been revealed in the appearing of Jesus Christ. We sing these words, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no human plan can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Right now, in this life, God's grace apprehends us. A life by grace given to us in Christ before the beginning of time, now revealed to the appearing of Jesus Christ. This grace of God, it's the foundation of our lives. We have life by grace. And by that same grace of God, we're called to bring holiness to life. By God's grace, we bring to life the heritage of faith that we've received. He saved us and called us to a holy life. So we fan into flame the gift of grace God has given us. You've been empowered by God's spirit to put God's grace into action. Uh, The fact that God has made you a new person gets demonstrated by the way you live your life for Jesus. We receive power, love, self-discipline, says Paul says Paul, so that we can put God's grace into action. Living this holy life is the natural expected overflow from our lives as we've been touched by God's grace. Maybe you've heard the computer science phrase, garbage in, garbage out, means the quality of the outputs determined by the quality of the input. Flawed or nonsensical input data will result in flawed and nonsensical output. That is, garbage. In the same way, our lives produce what is input. And God has input his grace. We've received this gift of God's grace calling us to a holy life. What we should expect as output is grace. God's grace in, God's grace out. One of our Advent letter writers in writing to the next generation said this. I see the heart of God show up all the time in people, events, the world around me and in myself too. I know deep down inside that I'm loved even though I'm broken and that God's working in my life to make me more whole, more the real intended me. God is love and Jesus embodies this sacrificial love like nothing else. This inspires my life. And is the foundation for my hope. The gracious love of God shapes us and empowers us. Not to manipulate others, but to serve others with the love of Jesus Christ that God has poured into our lives. Fan into flame the gift of God's grace. The grace that has been given to you. Pass along the grace that you've received. Advent is a a season in the life of the church here in which we're called to this watchful wait for the return of Jesus Christ. But here's the problem. Watchfulness, and especially never-ending watchfulness, is exhausting. And it seems like Christ's return will never happen. I mean, the church has been standing on tiptoe in expectation for 2,000 years. Now, it's pretty easy for us to watch and wait when we have a good idea the event is going to happen, the changing of a traffic light, the return of, of lab results, the arrival of a loved one at the airport. We can endure such watching and waiting with relative ease. But then there's little assurance, the hope for th- when there's little assurance, the hope for thing will happen then when we have no idea whether it will or will happen or when it will or will happen, then waiting and watching becomes less possible. I mean, no one can stand on tiptoe forever. No one can watch and wait for days or weeks or months or years on end. But Advent reminds us we're in a time of watching. Waiting, Not only for the arrival of Jesus in Bethlehem. I mean, that's easy. There's almost a kind of a fake quality to such watching and waiting. Someone once called it memorial watchfulness. I mean, we know Christmas will happen. We're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus in just a few days. We will celebrate the first coming of Jesus. It already happened but it is the second advent of Jesus, his return that makes for difficult waiting. Jesus told us to keep watch and in the same breath told his disciples that they wouldn't know when it would happen. And the followers of Christ have been kept in the dark ever since. We've lived our lives often with little expectation because as a church we grow tired, tired of standing on tiptoe. But it may be precisely because of this that Jesus instructed his disciples to watch. So you also must be ready, says Jesus, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Hold it. Did you see that? Did you see that watchfulness is just doing your job? Doing it well, doing it conscientiously. The servant preparing the food and serving it. It seems that being faithful to our Lord in everyday routines, being watchful in our waiting, is living the kind of holy life, the watchful life that Jesus expects. Being a thoughtful husband or wife or a friend, an honest office manager, a careful teacher, an ethical accountant, a caring nurse. These are signs that we are aware that Jesus came and is coming back. Here's what Paul's getting at. God's grace entered our lives to save us, and in return, we're called to holiness. That is, we're to live every moment of our lives by grace. We fill up our waiting time with grace. As someone once put it, when we let God's grace flow through us in our parenting and in our marriages, in our friendships and in our daily work, in how we behave when we're stuck in traffic, and how we interact with store clerks and restaurant servers, then we show watchfulness because we display an abiding sense of what Jesus has done for us. When you live with a constant awareness of Jesus' grace also live with a bent toward his second coming. We're not given a spirit that fears or is timid, but we're given God's grace so that our spirits are filled with power, love, self-discipline. When life doesn't go our way, rather than withdraw or complain, we pour out God's grace. We wait in grace. Perhaps you know the story of the hymn, When Peace Like a River. In mid-November 1873, Horatio and Anna Spafford and their four daughters were going to make a trip by ocean liner from New York to Paris. Last minute, however, Horatio had business come up, and so he sent his wife and his daughters ahead, assuring them that he would catch up with them in time for Christmas. There were 313 passengers aboard the ocean liner. The atmosphere on board was festive in anticipation of Christmas. It was a welcome occasion for the Spafford family. See, two years earlier, Horatio had lost almost all of his business interests in the Great Chicago Fire. And so this trip brought new hope to life. But this journey of hope and healing turned tragic. In the middle of the night, not far from their destination, the ocean liner collided with an iron-hulled clipper. Lifeboats filled. Anna got separated from her two oldest daughters. A wave washed over and swept Anna and her two youngest into the ocean. And when rescue workers arrived, they only found Anna, unconscious, afloat on a wooden plank. Rasha Spafford got news via a telegram from Anna. It read, Saved Alone. What shall I do? Horatio immediately sailed from New York. He told a friend that he was determined not to lose faith. And when they passed the area where Anna's ship went down, Horatio was gripped by the comfort only God could give. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Despite their suffering, Horatio and Anna clung with faith to God's grace. They returned to Chicago, and they were blessed with three more children. But one of these uh, sons succumbed to scarlet fever and died. Still, despite all of the tests and suffering that had happened to Horatio and Anna, they continued in faith with unwavering trust in God. In 1881, they moved to Jerusalem and they established a colony for humanitarian purposes. And in time, the Spafford's daughter, Bertha, expanded the humanitarian work. Her intent was to serve those who had experienced the shipwrecks of life. During World War I, she organized soup kitchens for refugees. She oversaw hospitals for wounded soldiers, regardless of which side they were on. One Christmas Eve, Bertha met a Bedouin man and a sick wife with a newborn son. They were unable to find lodging. To Bertha, it felt like a modern version of the Christmas story. The next morning, the mother died, and Bertha was asked to care for the child. And this began the most enduring Spafford work, a hospital for children, A hospital that made no distinction in nationality or creed. A hospital in Jerusalem that made no distinction of nationality or creed. A hospital in the tension-filled Middle East that made no distinction for, for nationality or for religious creed. But only sought to serve those who were in absolute need. This charitable work of the Spaffords continues to this day in the Spafford Children's Center serving whomever has need regardless of race, religion, or cultural background. A life by grace endures as they bring holiness to life. Life by grace towards the return of Jesus. O oh Lord, haste the day When my faith will be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Fan into flame the gift you receive from God. Generation after generation points to the grace of Jesus Christ as the foundation of faith. Generation after generation, God gives a spirit of power, of love, of self-discipline. Our life is by grace. From before the beginning of time, now revealed in the birth of Jesus Christ, and as we wait expectantly for His return, We live by grace. Every day, we just do our job. It really is quite simple. Here's the rhythm grace in, grace out. To the glory of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, we are, we are flabbergasted by your grace. To call it amazing almost seems like a slight. For you have radically changed our lives. And not only have we received your grace, but you, by your spirit, empower us to live your grace to dispense it to others who are in need, to others who cross our path, to all whom we interact with. Oh God, by your Spirit, help us to receive that grace of Jesus Christ that comes when he appears, that grace of Jesus that came in his coming to earth to be with us that grace of Jesus that humbled itself and help us to receive that grace and live that grace in all humility toward you and toward others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.